الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله ذلك فيض لنا الله وفيضن سيتي ديسيستنس اند فيجنس اند وي سيك ريفيوج ان الله فروم ذا ايفل باكاوز اند ذا ايفل كونسيكونسز اوف اور ديز بوا الله جايز ويزمون ذا كنديرن ستريت اند هو ايفر الله ليز ذا ستريت از نو ان ذا كين جايز هيم and the witness that nothing deserves to be worshipped except Allah alone and that he has no partners or associates and the witness that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his slave servant and his messenger I would like to begin in this uh, number 14 in our series of lectures concerning the sharh or the explanation of the hadith from umdus al-ahkam fadduh in the explanation uh, from Qaysir Al-Alam Sharh Umdat Al-Ahkam to Shaykh Abdullah Al-Bassam Hafizahullah May Allah protect and preserve him uh, The last hadith which we took hadith number 80 I'd like to go back to that hadith and briefly review the points which we covered from or the points of the ikhtilaf and uh, and then complete those points which we didn't finish in the last lecture and then go on to the remaining hadith so last week uh, in hadith number 80 the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha she said كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يفتح الصلاة بالتكبير that the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم used to begin his prayer by saying الله أكبر he used to make takbir to begin the salat wal qira'ati bi alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin and used to begin his reading the recitation from quran he used to begin it by reciting alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin wa kana idha raka'a lam yushkhis ra'sahu wa lam yusawwibhu walakin bayna dhalik And whenever he used to bow in the salat, when he used to make ruku' he did not raise his head up high nor low but he used to uh, bend his back in a position so that his head would be even in between uh, the two extremes وَكَانَ إِذَا رَفَعَ رَأْسَهُ مِنَ الرُّكُوعِ لَنْ يَسْجُدْ حَتَّى يَسْتَوِيَ قَائِمًا And whenever he used to raise his head up from the bowing position from ar-ruku' he used to stand up and he would not go to the next position that is the prostration or sajda until he was standing up straight completely and when he, when he raised up from ruku' he used to stand up completely straight his back being straight before uh, going to the next position the position of sajda or prostration 
وكان إذا رفع رأسه من السجدة لم يسجد حتى يستوي قائم قائدا and likewise when he used to raise his head up from sajda when he performed the first prostration and he used to sit up before making the second prostration he used to uh, sit up straight making his back straight before proceeding to make the second prostration وكان يقول في كل ركعتين التحية and in every two raka يعني whenever he performed two raka in the second raka and if it was four raka prayer and the four raka and so on in every two raka he used to recite at-tahiyya يعني the supplication at-tahiyyatu lillahi and so on in its different narrations from different companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam وكان يفرش رجله اليسرى وينسب رجله اليمنى and he used to lay his left foot flat and he used to pop up his right foot and this was the description of his sitting posture وَكَانَ يَنْهَا عَنْ عَقْبَةِ الشَّيْطَانِ and he used to prohibit it was a prohibition from anyone sitting in the sitting of shaitan those descriptions which the scholars mention وَيَنْهَا أَنْ يَفْتَرِشْ الرَّجُلُ ذِرَاعِهِ إِفْتِرَاشَ السَّبْعُ And he also used to prohibit the person from laying the arms, the palm of the hand and the forearm up to the elbow. He used to prohibit uh, uh, placing the arms flat on the ground as the wild beasts do. وَكَانَ يَقْتِمُ الصَّلَاةَ بِالْتَسْلِيمِ And he used to seal or close or end the salat with التسليم or the saying of As-Salamu Alaikum wa Rahmatullah which also has been reported in many authentic hadith uh, with different slightly different expressions some longer than others and so on and just saying As-Salamu Alaikum wa As-Salamu Alaikum wa Rahmatullah wa As-Salamu Alaikum wa Rahmatullah wa and according to the descriptions that, were, that came in the authentic hadith in any case he used to finish or close the prayer with Tasleem he used to begin the prayer with Takbir saying Allahu Akbar and he used to end the prayer with Tasleem saying Assalamu Alaikum Rahmatullah concerning this hadith the Shaykh mentioned a number of points and then he discussed those matters that are which there is difference of opinion of the points that he mentioned the ahkam or the rulings that one might derive from this hadith he said the first of them is that which uh, Aisha radiallahu anhu radiallahu anha and Allah pleased with her but she mentioned concerning the description of the prayer of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that this description was his normal regular manner of performing the salat she said kana rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that means he used to normally or regularly be like this this was his regular manner of performing the prayer and secondly from this hadith you can understand that it is obligatory to make takbir al-ihram or the first takbir uh, that one pronounces to enter the salat and this takbir, takbir al-ihram prohibits the person from any actions or speech which are outside of the actions of speech of the salat except for necessity and in case of emergency it's permissible 
to do something or say something that's outside of the salat and in those circumstances that require it. Uh, and also he said that no other expression may be used in place of the takbir. And you shouldn't say instead of Allahu Akbar, some other saying such as Subhanallah or anything else as an expression used to enter the salat. But the particular expression that's used for the beginning of the salat is Allahu Akbar. And this is of those matters of worship that are based on revelation and it, it's not open for ijtihad for someone yeah, to uh, use their intellect or otherwise to derive uh, a different ruling than that which is clearly understood from the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that is that one begins the prayer with the saying Allahu Akbar also the obligation of reading al-Fatiha without the basmala without saying bismillah although there are some hadith which suggest that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam did used to recite bismillah ar-Rahman rahim but in a low tone not in an audible tone uh, also from this hadith he says we understand the obligation of making ruku, bowing and that one's back should be straight and even not raised up or down but in between and also the obligation of rising up from our ruku and the obligation of air kibal that is standing straight after returning from the bowing position the obligation of prostration or sujood and the obligation of rising up from prostration yani in between the two prostrations and also an al or sitting straight with one back straight up in between the two prostrations of each rakah also he said the obligation of tashahud after every two rakah uh, and if the salat was a two rakah prayer such as fajr or one praying two rakah in the morning in Salat al-Duha or two rakah in the night in Tahajjud if it is a two rakah prayer then the person should make tasleem they should say assalamu alaikum uh, after tashahud otherwise after tashahud if it's three or four rakah prayer the person after reciting tashahud they should stand up to complete the remaining rakah of the prayer Then he mentioned the legislation or the manner in which it is legislated that a person should sit in the sitting positions of the salat. And he mentions two descriptions, one called al-iftirash and the other one al-tawarruq. And both of these positions uh, have been demonstrated by the Prophet وسلم, or used by him in the salat. And the scholars differed as to which one was preferable or the more correct one or when one should sit in this position or in the other position. Uh, he says that Al-Ifkirash and Tawarruq is especially for men, not for women. Based on a hadith that's reported in the Muratil, a book by Imam Abu Dawood. Uh, and also a hadith, that similar hadith was reported by Al-Bayhaqi uh, with a complete chain of narrative. But the hadith is not authentic. And what is more authentic than that is the hadith of the Prophet wasallam that verily women are the other half of men. And from this, many of the scholars 
said that it means that in acts of worship and in matters of being, that women are the same as men except where there is a particular uh, injunction in the Quran or in the Sunnah specifying that the women should perform the prayer or any act of worship or otherwise differently than men. Otherwise, in the absence of a particular injunction referring to women, then the matters of being uh, are legislated both for men and women equally. Also, from this hadith, we understand that it is prohibited to imitate the shaitan in the sitting position. The, sh- the sitting position of shaitan is called Uqbat al-Shaitan, and that is, it has been described in a number of manners, one uh, sitting on one's heels with the feet propped up, toes pointing forward, sitting on the heels with the feet like this, as well as sitting on the heels with the feet flat, the surface of the feet flat on the ground, as well as sitting on one's backside with your feet in front of you, your legs propped up, uh, which is a very strange position, and it is practiced by people from certain countries, uh, especially the women, as we, as it has been reported to us by those whom we trust. It was commonly seen in the Masjid of the Prophet Sallallahu Medina, by women some women sitting in this position. And this position is prohibited. The women should sit in the same position as the men do. Uh, also, the last, uh, the last two points he says, the prohibition of imitating the wild beast in their sitting position, that is, the way that the forearms are placed flat on the ground, whereas in prostration, one's palms should be flat on the ground and the arms should be raised up off the ground. But laying them flat, the palm and forearm on the ground, this is a prohibited manner of uh, prostration. And finally, he says the obligation of sealing or closing or completing the salat with taslim, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, and that this taslim is a supplication for those who are praying, those who are present, as well as those who are absent for the righteous. and. As some of the scholars said, the angels and all the creatures of Allah. And the meaning of As-Salam in this dua, he says, it means that it is a supplication that the person would be saved from evil and any defects or shortcomings. And some of the scholars also said that it is a supplication that Allah protect and preserve uh, God and watch over the person who is being prayed for. Then uh, here we reach the point of ikhtilaf where the scholars differed on certain points. And the Shaykh says concerning these ikhtilaf, and we mentioned some of them, but we didn't complete it last week. Uh, he says that the most correct opinion of the scholars of Usul, Usul of Fiqh, the Usul mean, he said, that the correct opinion with them is that the actions of the Prophet ﷺ do not indicate al-wujub. The actions of the Prophet in Salat or in any act of worship, if we know that he did something in a certain manner, it doesn't mean it's obligatory simply by the fact that he did it, but the actions of the Prophet indicate istihbab. Whenever we know that the Prophet did a certain thing in worship, it indicates that that thing is mustahab, that it is commendable, it is recommended, it is beloved to do so, not that it's obligatory. Unless there is a secondary evidence, which indicates that those actions were intended to be, uh, yani that the ruling for them is that they are 
wajib or obligatory. Without a secondary evidence, we say that whatever the Prophet did in the Salat and in other acts of worship, that they are mustahab, it is commendable to do so, it is rewardable to do so, and it is loved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then he says that these actions and sayings that have been described in this hadith are meant to be, or they, they indicate al-wujub, they indicate that, this, that they are obligatory due to the fact that the Prophet ﷺ in this hadith were reported that he used to do so, and that coupled with the statements of the Prophet ﷺ where he said, Sallu kama usalli, I order you to pray, or pray in the command form, he said, pray as you have seen me praying. Therefore, if we know that he prayed in a certain way, and he, told, and he ordered us to pray as he prayed, then we understand that it's obligatory, that whatever he did in the prayer, it's obligatory for one to do so, unless there's a separate proof, I mean, excluding any particular saying or any particular action in the salat. Otherwise, whatever the Prophet ﷺ did in the prayer, if we know that he did so, then we are obligated to pray in that same manner as he did. Sunnah uh, al-Sheikh says that this is the reason ruin that the actions and the sayings in the salat due to this hadith, prayer as you see me praying, all actions and sayings in the salat are obligatory. Except that there are a few uh, items, there are a few matters in the salat about which the scholars differ, whether they are obligatory or not. And here, the first point uh, concerning which the scholars differ about whether or not it is obligatory is التشاهد الأول والجلوس له يعني the first تشاهد that one uh, recites in the second rakah uh, of a of the salat in the that has three rakah or four rakah in those prayers that have three or four rakah or more then there is more than one تشاهد in that case the scholars differ about the first تشاهد is, is it obligatory or not and the first opinion is that it's obligatory this is the opinion of Imam Ahmed and Imam Layth and Imam Ishaq ibn Rahawai, Dawood, Abu Thawr, Imam Shafi'i, and one of the two reports from him. And all of these scholars said that uh, the recitation of Tashahud al awwal and the second rakah of the three or four rakah prayer is obligatory, it's mandatory to do so. And there is, as evidence, those hadiths which were reported uh, mentioning a Tashahud without any uh, without any clarification or any limitation that the tashahud uh, is only yeah, I mean, obligatory in the first as opposed to the last tashahud, the first and the second. Yeah, I mean, there is no, in those hadith where there was no distinction, just yeah, I mean, the indication that one must recite a tashahud, they said then it's general. It should be in every tashahud, this is applicable that uh, you have to Recited, whether the first tashahud or the second. Also, uh, they also mentioned uh, in support of their position the hadith which we have mentioned tonight, hadith number 80, they use that as a proof for them because in that hadith the mention of tashahud came. And another proof that they use is the hadith of Abdul ibn Mas'ud. Which is mentioned in the Sunnah of the Nasai and the Muslim of Imam Ahmed. Uh, and that hadith was reported by narrators who are considered to be reliable narrators. In that hadith, it says that the Prophet said, إِذَا قَعَدْتُمْ فِي كُلِّ رَكَعَتَيْنِ فَقُولُوا 
if anyone of you sits in every two rakah, فَقُولُوا Then he must say, أَتَّحِيَاتُ لِلَّهِ To the end of the dua. And in this indicates, he says, you must say it. Therefore, it's obligatory. And they say, this is general. He didn't say only in the first tashahud, only in the second tashahud. But he said, whenever you sit in every two rakah, you must say, أَتَّحِيَاتُ لِلَّهِ the second opinion is the opinion of Imam Abu Hanifa and the other Imams Malik and Ash-Shafi'i rahimahumullah may Allah have mercy on all of them Ash-Shafi'i in the second report from him because there are two uh, opinions that are reported from Ash-Shafi'i the first of them that is obligatory but the second uh, report from Ash-Shafi'i is in agreement with the opinion of Imam Malik and Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahumullah in which they held that the recitation of tashahid, the first one, tashahid al-awwal, it is mustahab, not obligatory, but mustahab. And the evidence that they use uh, is that the Prophet ﷺ once forgot to recite tashahid in the first, uh, in the second rakah, the first sitting for tashahid, and he didn't return to it, he didn't go back and recite it. If it had been obligatory, then it is expected that once he remembered or he was informed, then he would have returned to that position and recited it. Uh, the other group who said that it's obligatory, they answered them by saying that the Prophet ﷺ didn't uh, return to the sitting position to recite the tashahid uh, or tahiyyat. He didn't return to recite it uh, because the general ruling concerning such is that if a person stands up from the second rakah to go to the third rakah, if they have not stood up completely and they remember that they forgot at the shahid, they should return. But if they have stood up completely, then they should not return. And this has been reported in a hadith uh, in the Sunan of Abu Dawood from on the attack of Mughayra ibn Shaba, radiallahu anhu from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa He said that if anyone of you stands up from two rakah and he has not completely stood up, then he must sit back down yani to recite the shahid. But if he has stood up completely, then do not sit, but simply make two sajdi at the end, sajda as-sahwa, the sajda for forgetfulness. Uh, this was the first point about which there's difference of opinion. The second point that we mentioned last week about which there's difference of opinion was concerning the preferred manner of sitting in the salat. And there were four opinions. Uh, the first opinion, the opinion of the Hanafi Madhab, they said that Iftirash, that is sitting with the right foot propped up and the left foot flat, sitting on the left foot, yani, sitting not on the floor but on the left foot, this is called Iftirash. This is the opinion of the Hanafi scholars, they said that Iftirash is for every sitting in the Salat, whether in the first Tashahud, second Tashahud, in between two prostrations, in every sitting in the Salat, the correct manner for sitting is Iftirash. The second opinion is the Maliki scholars, and they said the opposite. They said that Tawarruq, Tawarruq means sitting with the right foot, uh, with the left foot sliding underneath it. And sitting not on the left foot, but sitting on your backside. And you lift your backside, your buttocks on the floor, not on your foot. This is called Tawarruq. And the Maliki scholars said that Tawarruq is the preferred manner of sitting in the Salat, in Tashahud al-Awwal, Tashahud al-Thani, between two prostrations in every sitting, Tawarruq is the more preferable sitting. The third opinion is the opinion of uh, the Shafi'i and Hanbali scholars. Uh, they are in agreement to a certain extent and then they also differ. 
and they are in agreement that in those prayers which have two tashahud, yani two sittings, three rakah prayer such as Maghrib or four rakah prayer such as Dhuhr and Asr and Isha, in those prayers that have two sittings, the first sitting for tashahud the person should sit is tirash, yani sitting on your left foot. The last sitting for tashahud in the third or fourth rakah, you should sit tawarruk, sitting with your backside on the floor. This is uh, the third opinion, it is agreed upon by the Shafi'i and Hanbali scholars, that this is the preferable uh, manner of sitting in the salat. In the first sitting is iftirash, and in the last sitting is tawarruk. But they differed concerning the salat, which only has one sitting, such as salat al-fajr. There are only two rakah and there's only one sitting for the recitation of uh, tashahud. Concerning this, uh, they differed on this point. They said if there's only one sitting, the Shafi'i scholars said in that sitting you should do tawarruk. tawarruk. And the Hanbali scholars said, uh, I'm sorry, um, the Shafi'i scholars said that in that sitting you should do iftirash. Iftirash. Yani sitting on your left foot. And the Hanbali scholars said, Tawarruq. Yani if it is, uh, I hope I'm not confusing you. <laughs> uh, subhanallah. In the Salat, which has only two rakah, there's only one sitting, uh, the Shafi'i scholars preferred Tawarruq. And the Hanbali scholars preferred Iftirash. Now, this is the correct opinion. The Hanbali scholars preferred Iftirash in the Salat, which there's only one sitting, that is sitting on the left foot. And the uh, uh, Shafi'i scholars preferred sitting on your backside, that is Tawarruq. And they mentioned the evidences, and due to lack of time, it's not possible to go through all of the evidences. As we mentioned those evidences last week, and there's still two other points of difference of opinion to mention. But the main thing that they said, the Shafi'i scholars said that uh, they used the hadith which mentioned tawarruq in the last rakah. They said that this is applicable. If there's only one sitting, then you should do tawarruq. The Hanbali scholars said that tawarruq is exclusively for the prayer that has two sittings in order to make a distinction between the first sitting and the second sitting. Therefore, there should be two manners of sitting. The first uh, sitting would be iftirash, sitting on the left foot, and the second sitting in the last rakah would be uh, tawarruq, yani sitting on your backside. They said that there should be a distinction between the two sittings, and therefore um, this tawarruq is only to be used in the salat that has two sittings, so that there is a difference between the two sittings. And they also said that part of the wisdom of this is that the person in the second rakah and the first sitting, if they are doing iftirash, they are in a, a position prepared to stand up for the third rakah. Uh, and in the last rakah, when you are not going to stand up after it, then tawarruq is more suitable because you are in a more relaxed and comfortable sitting, sitting position where there is no need to stand up after it for another rakah because it is used and the tawarruq will be used in the last rakah. This is a summary yani, of what they said concerning uh, these, uh, yani the, the salat that only has two uh, rakah or one sitting. The Shaykh also mentioned that the preferable 
I don't know if we mentioned this last week, I think we reached to this point that the preferable uh, supplication for tashahud is the tashahud that was narrated from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu Naam? Naam? <laughs> yes. Actually, we have discussed this many times, but because you are new with us, it, it's, you are not familiar with this. The, in brief, the, the answer to your question, why do the different imams or the scholars, on certain points, why do they have a different opinion? Yeah. The reason for this, there are many reasons. But we said in the introduction to our course, we said that some of the reasons why the scholars differed and why they differ today is because, <coughs> number one, some of them understood the verses of Qur'an that are proofs in a particular issue, they understood it differently. That's the first thing. Uh, there are words in Arabic language that have more than one meaning. So one person understood it to mean one thing, and the other person understood it to mean something else, therefore they came to a different conclusion. Imam? The Imam? Ah. Okay, let me finish the first question first, and then I will uh, try to answer the second question. Uh, the second reason why there is difference in opinion is due to the hadith of the Prophet Some scholars came to know about hadith which others didn't know about because there are thousands of hadith and no one knew all of the hadith. So someone, they knew about a hadith and they based their opinion on it. Whereas the other one didn't know about that hadith, so he couldn't use that as a proof, he wasn't unaware of it. So he held a different opinion, not knowing about that particular point. Also, some hadith, both scholars may have known about it, but one of them considered it to be authentic and acceptable, while the other one understood or believed that that hadith was not authentically correctly reported from the Prophet therefore he didn't accept it immediately as a proof. Uh, also, sometimes in the absence of a clear text from the Qur'an or Sunnah, the scholars made ijtihad. Some of them made qiyat or comparison or analogy. And when they made this kind of uh, analogical deduction or analogical reasoning or comparison, some of them came to different conclusions than others. And also there are secondary sources of Islamic jurisprudence or law. Some of them used some of those secondary sources and others did not agree with them. Yeah, I mean some of them considered, for example, the practices of the people of Medina. Al-Imam Malik considered the practices of the people of Medina to be a source of legislation. And other scholars didn't accept it as so. So he, has, he made a decision based on that, the practice of the people of Medina who were closer to the Prophet and others who didn't accept that as a source, didn't make their opinion based on this, and so on. These are in brief some of the reasons for the difference. Uh, now, also, as to which one of them is on the correct path, all of the Imams, basically, and the well-known Imams of the people of Sunnah, they all strive to accomplish or to reach the correct opinion. But they are human beings, and the human being is limited. And therefore, everyone is subjected or, or susceptible to make mistakes. 
they are on the right, righteous path, but they are human beings, and when they try to uh, make a deduction or a ruling, sometimes they err. Sometimes they err. They are not guided by divine revelation as the prophets are. Therefore, in some cases, one who may have erred, made a mistake, while the other one reached the correct conclusion. But we don't say if he made a mistake that he's not on the right path. But we say he made a mistake, he made an error. He's a human being. And we still accept him as our, uh, as our teacher, as our sheikh, as our imam, as one of the great scholars of the Muslim Ummah. And we follow him in those rulings which he was correct in. But if we know that he made a mistake, then we don't accept the mistakes of the human beings. Because we are expected uh, and required to follow the Qur'an and the Sunnah of the Prophet and for the Imams and the scholars who came after, we respect them and we look to their knowledge and try to benefit from their research and their decisions and rulings. But if we know they made a mistake in a certain matter, then we don't accept their mistakes. We accept their correct opinions and correct rulings. Okay, this is a summary of your question and we have a lot to cover. And uh, there is a class coming after us. So if we complete the hadith we have for today, we may inshallah take uh, further questions. Mm. None. That's correct. The Imam, such as Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, and Shafi, and Ahmed, uh, they reached their opinions and conclusions before all of the hadith had been collected, especially before the work of the great scholars of hadith, Imam Bukhari and Muslim, and those like them. And those Imams all agreed that if any opinion they hold contradicts the authentic hadith, then their opinion is the authentic hadith and reject that opinion which they made without knowing about that authentic hadith. So in any case, uh, in our benefiting from the Imams, if we realize that they held an opinion which was contradictory or in conflict with any authentic hadith which has not been abrogated, then we understand that their opinion is that hadith. Had they known about it, they would have accepted it and they would have based their opinion on it. So they said, that's really my opinion. Uh, if you came to the correct hadith, follow it. And that's what we do. We don't follow the errors, but we follow the correct hadith. Let's continue, inshallah, if there are any questions in the end, we'll take them. Uh, so, the Shaykh, the last thing that he mentions here is that the most, the best uh, expression of tashahud that has been reported by the companions of the Prophet, uh, is the tashahud that was narrated by Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu this is the most authentic tashahud and the preferable and best of them uh, and this is the one that the scholars have agreed upon by consensus that it is the preferable uh, a manner of reciting a tashahud although there are other manners of reciting a tashahud which are also sahih they are authentic and they are correct and they are acceptable the tashahud of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud is found commonly in many books, especially the books of the people of Hadith and the people of Sunnah Assalamu alayna wa ala ibadillahi salihin 
أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله. This, uh, this manner of the tashahud is common and found in many of the books, especially of the people of Sunnah. And although there are other manners of reciting a tashahud that are correct, this is the preferable one. The next point the Shaykh mentions concerning this hadith, hadith number 80, is that the scholars have agreed upon that upon the fact that the saying of At-Tasleem, As-Salaamu Alaykum Wa Rahmatullah, is a part of the Salat which is legislated. But they differ about whether or not the Tasleem is twice or once. And is it, is it necessary to say As-Salaamu Alaykum Wa Rahmatullah only one time to the right side, or is it necessary to say it to the right and to the left twice? Uh, the Sheikh says that the correct opinion is that it is legislated to say the Tasleem twice due to the correctness of the Hadith reporting the saying of Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah to the right and to the left twice and due to the uh, weakness of the Hadith reporting uh, Tasleem al-Wahida or one Tasleem uh, He says that if we, for the sake of argument agree that there is authentic hadith concerning one tasneem even if we agree for the sake of argument that there are authentic hadith uh, reporting that still the hadith which report two tasneem they have something extra more than the one which report one tasneem and that extra thing doesn't contradict the other narration yeah, and in other words the reports will say you should say assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah to the right side and assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah to the left side uh, this is, it gives you extra information more than the reports which just say Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah only to the right side or to one side. It gives you more information and that extra information if it is authentically reported and it doesn't contradict the other authentic narrations then it should be acceptable because the extra information that comes from reliable reporters is acceptable according to the science of hadith. Uh, I would like to add that concerning this particular issue, uh, the Sheikh said if we agree for the sake of argument that there are authentic reports, then still it is better to recite the Tasleem twice because it's extra. And if you do extra, you get more reward. If it's from the Sunnah, not doing extra outside of the Sunnah. But if it is uh, in the Sunnah to do something less or do something more, then that which is more is more rewardable. Yeah, and for example, if you pray two rakah in tahajjud, it's acceptable. But if you pray four rakah, it's more rewardable because you are doing more worship. So if you say assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah or assalamu alaikum one time, and it has been authentically reported to do so, then it is acceptable. But if you do both of them, you have done more, and it is more rewardable. Concerning the matter of the hadith which report one tasneem, Shaykh Muhammad Masjid al-Albani in his book, Sifat al-Salat al-Nabi mentions كَانَ يُسَلَّمْ تَسْلِيمَ وَاحِدًا that the Prophet وسلم, on occasion used to make one taslim saying As-salamu alaykum with his face uh, in the facing directly in front of him يَمِيرُ إِلَى الشَّقَ الْأَيْنًا شَيْئًا يعني just slightly turning to the right side slightly not completely like normally in the Salat when you make taslim you should turn your face completely to the right and completely to the left as it has been described in the authentic hadith but in this case of one tasneem the Prophet ﷺ used to turn his face slightly to the right but really facing the front direction and he used to say Assalamu Alaikum
this is authentically reported as mentioned or in the, as collected in the Sahih of Ibn Khuzaymah, in the Sunnah of Al-Bayhaqi, and in the Musnad of Imam Ahmed with a Sahih Isnad or chain of narrators, and it has also been authenticated by Al-Hakim and agreed upon by Al-Imam Al-Zahabi and Ibn Mulaqan, and it has been also, the research concerning this has been mentioned in the book of Shaykh Al-Bani, Rahimahullah, uh, may Allah have mercy on him and grant him a great reward for the work that he has done uh, for the preservation of the Sunnah. In his book, Al-Irwa, Al-Ghalil, Hadith number 327, he mentions the research concerning this issue and that in fact there are authentic reports concerning one Tasleem. In any case, to do two Tasleems is better and more rewardable, though it's permissible to make one Tasleem. It's, uh, it's from the Sunnah. The last point of the ikhtilaf concerning this hadith number 80 is the difference of the scholars concerning the obligation of taslim. Yani whether or not it is obligatory to make the taslim. The first opinion is the opinion of those scholars who said that it is wajib to say the taslim. And this is the opinion of the Hanafi scholars. And they use as a proof for such that which has been reported by Imam al-Tirmidhi rahimahullah from Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said إِذَا رَفَعَ الْإِمَامُ رَأْسَهُ مِنَ السَّجْدَةِ that if the Imam raises up his head from sajda وَقَعَدَ and he sat ثُمَّ أَحْكَثَ and then he nullified his wudu by passing wind or any nullification of wudu after he raised up from sajda and he sat in the sitting, last sitting of the prayer and then he nullified his wudu before saying assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah فَقَدْ تَمَّتْ صَلَاتُهُ then his salat is completed yani based on this hadith the Hanafi scholars uh, I'm sorry they didn't say that it's obligatory they said that it's not obligatory and they said that saying of Tasleem is not obligatory since in this hadith we can understand that if a person invalidated their wudu before they made Tasleem if the salat is complete then Tasleem is not obligatory because once you invalidate your wudu, then the, the salat is, is stopped there. You cannot continue praying. So they said based on this hadith that uh, the making of the saying of taslim is not obligatory. They also use as a proof the hadith of al-Musi, uh, the one who didn't perform his salat correctly. It was the famous hadith in which a man came to perform salat. And then he came to the Prophet and the Prophet told him to return, we haven't prayed. And he came back again, he went and tried to pray again and the Prophet told him to return, so you haven't prayed. And finally he said, I don't know how to pray any better, teach me how to pray. And in that description, the Prophet instructed him how to perform the Salat and he didn't mention the Tasleem. He didn't mention it. So they said, then it's not obligatory, because if it was obligatory, it was necessary for the Prophet to tell him that you have to make Tasleem. But he didn't tell them. So this is the opinion of the Hanafi Madhab. Uh, the second group of scholars, they answered them by saying the hadith of Ibn Umar about the Salat being complete without Tasleem, if someone invalidated the wudu, that this hadith is agreed upon by the scholars of hadith to be weak. It is not acceptable, it is not authentic. So it cannot be used as a proof. Uh, even Imam al himself, who narrated the hadith said that this hadith is isnad, isnaduhu laysa bi that, 
Al-Qawi, that the Isnad for this hadith is not strong. And we even didn't accept the hadith as being a reliable hadith. As for the, uh, the hadith of Al-Musi, the one who didn't perform his prayer correctly, uh, they answered this by saying that the fact that the Prophet didn't mention it here in that description, but he mentioned it in other authentic hadith. There's no contradiction between them. Whenever there's some extra information reported by reliable narrators, then that extra information should be accepted and it should be observed and followed. Okay, this is the end of what we have concerning, uh, no I'm sorry, uh, the second opinion, we didn't mention the second opinion concerning this. Uh, the second opinion is those who said, uh, as in, in contradiction to the Hanafi Madhab who said that it's not obligatory, the other opinion is that the Tasleem is obligatory, and this is the opinion of the majority of the companions of the Prophet and those who came after them from the Tabi'een, and also the scholars of the different Madhab such as the Shafi'i Madhab, and the Hanbali Madhab, they held that it is obligatory and, the, and they use as proof the fact that the Prophet wasallam always, always consistently made the taslim at the end of the Salat. He always did it and he said, Sallu kama ra'aytumuni usalli, I order you to pray as you have seen me praying. Therefore, if he always made taslim and he ordered us to pray as he prayed, then we also are required to make taslim. And another proof that they use from the many proofs they said that it has also been authentically reported in the books of Sunan, yani in the Sunan of Abu Dawud and Sunan of Imad al Nasai, the saying of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, "Taharimuha al-takbir wa taharimuha al-taslim," yani that the taharim or the prohibiting point for the salat after which you shouldn't do anything or say anything other than the prayer is the takbir. The takbir is what. Uh, prohibits you from doing anything else. When you make takbir, you enter the salat, okay, you shouldn't be talking or moving or doing anything except that which is part of the salat. And the tahliluha, yani, where you become free from that state, from that state of tahrim, is the tasleem. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. So that the salat has a point uh, at which you enter it and you are not allowed to do anything other than the prayer, and a point where you come out of the prayer and you are free from those prohibitions or restrictions. The entering into this prayer is, is, is takbir and the going out of the prayer is tasleem. So they said this is also a proof that it's a necessity to make tasleem. If you don't do it, you don't go out of the prayer. Yani you are not free from the tahreem of the salat until you make uh, tasleem. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. In any case, the next hadith is hadith number 81, the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma. أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم كان يرفع يديه حذو منكبيه إذا افتح إذا افتتح الصلاة يعني عبد الله بن عمر رضي الله عنهما ميلابيتيزهم من الصلاة يسد الدفاع صلى الله عليه وسلم يشترين his hands near or in accordance with the level of his shoulders. He used to raise his hands, making the takbir to the level of his shoulders. And there are some narrations which report that he used to raise the level of his ears. Not touching the ears, but to the level of the ears. There are some narrations which said to the level of the shoulders, and some which said to the level of the ears. And some scholars said that if you raise your hands like this, it will be up to the shoulders and up to the ears. Yani the bottom of the hand is on the shoulders, and the top of the hand is near the ears. So this is yani, uh, applying both hadith. Both of which are authentic. And if you put the hands in a position that you are, and applying both hadith is, and the opinion of some of the scholars. 
from this hadith, uh, Abdullah ibn Umar he mentions to us that the Prophet used to do so. He used to raise his hands to his shoulders at the time of opening or beginning the salat. وَإِذَا كَبَّرَ لِلْوَقُوعِ Also, whenever he used to make takbir to go to bound, to the bound position, he also used to raise his hand. وَإِذَا رَفَعَ رَأْسَهُ مِنَ الرُّقُوعِ رَفَعُهُمَا رَفَعُهُمَا كَذَلِكَ أَيْدًا And also when he used to raise up his head from bowing, from ruku, he used to raise his two hands also in that same manner. Yani he says here that the times when the Prophet used to raise his hands is when he used to begin the prayer, the takbir. And also when he used to bow, going to ruku. And also when he used to raise up his head from ruku. These are three times that are mentioned in this hadith and the other narrations which we reported, which are not mentioned by the author here. Uh, which mentioned authentically in the Sahih al-Bukhari that he used to raise his hand when he used to uh, rise up from the sitting, the first sitting in the second rakah when he used to rise up for the third rakah also he used to raise his hands in this manner that means that there are four times raising the hands the first of them is in the technique of ihram the second of them is after the recitation of Al-Fatiha and something from the Qur'an when you go to Ruku, you should raise your hands to bow and the third of them is coming up from Ruku, you should raise your hands when you are coming back up to the standing position and the fourth of them is at the end of the second rakah when you finish the tashahud in the end of the second rakah and you want to stand up for the third rakah then also the Prophet used to raise his hands that means in the beginning of the first rakah and in the beginning of the third rakah, the second set, yani the first two rakah, for the first rakah is takbir, raising hands, and in the third rakah, the second set of the rakatain also used to raise his hands, and he used to raise his hands for bowing and coming up from bowing. These are four positions that are authentically reported uh, by the scholars al-Bukhari and Muslim and others. So here he says, uh, then he says, وَقَالَ يعني that the Prophet when he used to raise his hands when rising up from Ruku, he used to say, سَمِعَ اللَّهُ لِمَنْ حَمِدَ That Allah listens or hears and responds to those who praise him. رَبَّنَا وَلَكَ الْحَمْدُ O our Lord, the praise, alhamd, it belongs to you. Or you are the one who has the right to it. The Prophet used to say so when he was rising up uh, from Ruku, he used to say, سَمِعَ اللَّهُ لِمَنْ حَمِدَ and when he gets to the standing position, he used to say, "Rabbana walak alhamd." وَكَانَ لَا يَفْعَلُ ذَلِكَ فِي السُّجُودِ And Abdullah ibn Umar said, The Prophet وسلم, did not used to do so for sujood. Yani he did not used to raise his hand. When he made takbir, when he made takbir, uh, going to sajda, he didn't used to raise his hand. He used to raise his hands coming up from the from the ruku, bowing, but he didn't raise his hands again when he went to sajda. He said, وَكَانَ لَا يَفْعَلُ ذَلِكَ He didn't used to do so for sujood. Uh, the shaykh here says, Allahu Musta'an. Uh, he says, the general meaning of this hadith is that salat is one of the noble actions that a Muslim should perform and it contains in it many good things uh, every part of the body participates in the salat uh, every part of the body has a particular act of worship or something to do yani all the parts of the body are participating in this type of ibadah called as salat 
and from amongst them are the hands, from amongst the members or the parts of the body that have a particular uh, role in the salat are the hands. And their job, uh, yani, as described in this hadith, is that the Prophet used to raise them in these four occasions in the salat. Yani, where he used to raise his hands at takbir to ihram, and this is According to the Shaykh, he says, and some scholars said so, that it is a beautification for the Salat. The raising of the hands to Tahbir to Ihram is a beautification for Salat. Some scholars said that it is an indication of the entry into the Salat. Yani, raising the hands to Tahbir to Ihram is an indication that one is entering in the, into the Salat. And others said that it is the raising, Rafa, Hijab al Ghafla, yani the raising of the hands in Tahbir to Ihram is removing the curtain or the screen of unmindfulness. Yani at the time when you raise your hands for tahbir to ihram, you should concentrate and remember that now is the time to be mindful and to be conscious and to reflect on what you are doing. If you had been unmindful walking around during the day, not paying attention to what's happening around you and not remembering Allah as you should be at the time when you make tahbir to ihram, leave that unmindfulness alone and concentrate on this great act of worship of Salat. Uh, yani that you are now in contact, yani you are entering that act which is yani the direct communication between the person who is praying and between the Lord, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Also he says the raising of the two hands is up to the level of the shoulders and also uh, the raising should be done at the time for going to ruku in every raka and also when raising from ruku in every raka. Really that in this hadith, uh, there is a clear indication, clear indication from the narrator of the hadith, from Abdul ibn Umar that the Prophet did not use to raise his hand when he went to sajda. This hadith, the wording of Abdul ibn Umar is very clear. He is describing how the Prophet used to raise his hands in the salat and he is telling us clearly that he did not use to raise his hands when going to ruku. Okay, the scholars differed concerning some points here, but uh, perhaps let us just mention the points that, that are derived from the hadith and then go back to the difference of opinion in case there's not enough uh, time. Or should we just take the difference of opinion? How much time before the adhan? Five or ten minutes or less? Ten minutes? Uh, the scholars concerning raising of the hands in other positions, yani other than those which are mentioned in this hadith. The majority of the, of the scholars from amongst Sahaba and the Tabi'een and those who came after them and, and included in them are the two Imams, Al-Shafi'i and Ahmed, rahimahumullah. Uh, they held that it is mustahab to raise the hands. It is mustahab in these three positions that are mentioned in this hadith. And we mentioned the fourth position, which is mentioned in another hadith in Bukhari, that is, in rising up to the third rakah after the first three. But in this hadith, there are three positions mentioned. He said that these scholars, the majority of Sahaba and Tabi'een, and Imam al-Shafi'i and Ahmed, rahimahullah, they said that it's mustahab to raise the hands in these mentioned positions. Ibn al-Majini, one of the shaykhs of al-Bukhari, rahimahullah, said that this hadith is a proof. It is a proof against all of the creatures, against all of humanity. And whoever abandons this, this will be a proof against the Manawakiyam, because the hadith is strong and it is clear that it is necessary to do so. Uh, 
whoever heard this hadith, Ali Mazini said, whoever heard it, then it is obligatory on them to practice it. It becomes obligatory on them to practice it. Ibn Qayyim uh, says that the raising of the hand has been mentioned from the Prophet وسلم, in these three positions by more than or nearly 30 different companions of the Prophet وسلم, all mentioning these, the raising of the hand in these three positions. Uh, and ten of them, ten of those Sahaba agreed, yani, in the way they narrated the hadith, they agreed with one another exactly yani, in the manner that it was done. Al-Hakim Rahimahullah said, uh, I don't know, or we don't know of any sunnah that has been agreed upon by the four Khulafa al-Rashidin, yani Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Al-Ali, radiallahu anhu, besides this sunnah. And we don't know of any other sunnah that has been more firmly agreed upon by the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, including the four uh, leaders of the Muslims after the Prophet then the ten people who were promised paradise and those who came after them from amongst the major companions of the Prophet There's no other sunnah that has been agreed upon by all of them. By the Khulafa Rashidin, the four leaders of the Muslims, the ten people promised paradise and all of the major companions of the Prophet, all of them agreed on this sunnah. So there's no way that anybody can reject it. There's no way that anybody can reject it. It's too clear. In a narration from Al-Imam Ahmed that was selected by Al-Majd, the grandfather of Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, and in some of the other books he mentions here that this is the chosen position, and it is also the chosen position of his Shaykh, Abdurrahman al-Sa'di, rahimahullah, uh, and it is also reported from Al-Imam al-Shafi'i, yani the raising of the hands in these positions and also a group from amongst the Sahaba and a group from amongst the people of Hadith that raising of the hands is mustahab in four places and the three mentioned in this Hadith and the fourth one which we mentioned from another Hadith that's, that's mentioned in the handout here but it's not mentioned in the text of the book that these four positions are agreed upon uh, in a narration from Ash-Shafi'i and it is the opinion of those scholars which you mentioned and this should, the fourth position he says is that when one rises up from the tashahud al-awwal, the first tashahud in the khalat that has two fittings for tashahud. And rising up from the first tashahud, and from the end of the second rakah to the third rakah is the fourth position that has been agreed upon by many of the scholars. And it is authentically reported in the Sahih of Al-Bukhari, as he mentions here from Abdullah ibn Umar, uh, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used to do so. Uh, also, due to that which is in the hadith of Abu Hamid that has been reported by Abu Dawood and al tirmidhi who said that it was sahih ثُمَّ إِذَا قَامَ مِنَ الرَّقَاتِينِ رَفَعَ يَدَيْهِ حَتَّى يُحَاذِي بِهِمَا لَنْهِدَيْهِ And in this hadith is reported that when the Prophet when the Prophet would stand up from two rakah to perform two rakah and he would raise his hands until they were even uh, with his shoulders the second opinion is that which the opinion of Imam Malik rahimahullah, uh, in the most yani, well-known reports from him and also from Abu Hanifa that it is not mustahab to raise the hands for takbirat al-ihram yani that it is not 
مثل مستحب أن يتلوك الحديث البراء بن عازب رضي الله عنه يقول بعد الدعوت أن يشهد رأيت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إذا اكتفح الصلاة رفع يديه ثم لم يعد يعني عند الحديث يشهد Actually, the opinion of Imam Malik and Abu Hanifa is that it is not mustahab to raise the hands in any position other than takbir to ihram. Yani that you should raise your hands for takbir to ihram only. But for the other position, it's not mustahab. And that's based on this hadith that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, if I saw him when he used to open the prayer, he used to raise his hand, then he didn't used to raise his hands again, yani in any other position. Uh, the scholars of hadith, the hafad of hadith, they are in agreement that uh, this statement, ثُمَّ لَا is mudrika. And it is something that was added by a narrator. It was added by a narrator who recorded the hadith. Uh, <coughs> and he said that the one who added this uh, to the hadith was Yazid ibn Abi Ziyad, who was one of the narrators of hadith. And in other words, this was not really the statement of Al-Bara ibn Azib, but someone who reported the hadith after him, and who heard it from him, and somebody heard it from them, one of the reporters in the chain, uh, he added this statement, ثُمَّ لَمْ يعود. So it's not really correct, and it's not a correct statement. Though the first part of the hadith is correct, but the last part is not really uh, correct, and therefore it's not a proof. It's not a proof for what they're saying, that it's not necessary to raise the hands, or it's not mustahab to raise the hands in the other positions. They also use as a proof for their position that which has been reported from Abdul ibn Mas'ud in the Muslim of Imam Ahmed, the Sunnah of Abu Dawood and the Tirmidhi. لَأُصَلِّيَنَّ لَكُمْ صَلَاةَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ فَصَلَّى فَلَمْ يَرْفَعْ يَدَيْهِ إِلَّا مَرَّةٌ وَاحِدَةٌ يعني it has been reported from Abdul ibn Mas'ud in those books which we mentioned, he said, I will perform for you the prayer of the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم, meaning as he used to pray, and then he prayed to demonstrate them the prayer of the Prophet and he didn't raise his hands except one time, meaning referring to the first takbir to ihram. Uh, At-Tirmidhi said this hadith is Hassan. Ibn Hazm said that it is sahih, it is correct, authentic. But uh, Ibn al-Mubarak, Abdul ibn al-Mubarak considered this hadith not to be sahih. And also Ibn Abdul Hakim, and these are the most, the strongest scholars of hadith from the early generation of the Muslim, Abu al Mubarak and uh, Ibn Abi Hatim and such scholars, they said that this hadith is incorrect, it's not authentic, it is a mistake. And Abu Dawood himself said clearly uh, concerning this hadith, and he is one of the people who collected the hadith in his sunnah, he said, uh, with this, this particular expression of the hadith, the way it came here, that this hadith is not sahih. So it's also not a proof. It's not a proof for the opinion of the second group of scholars that it's not mustahab. In fact, it is mustahab because the more authentic hadith show that the Prophet وسلم, after the tahbir to ihram, used to raise his hands for ruku and coming up from ruku and coming up after the second rakah to the third rakah. Uh, so from this we can summarize and say that the raising of the hands in these four places are mustahab, that is, as we mentioned, tahbir to ihram, going to ruku, returning from ruku, and standing up after the tashahud al-awwah. Uh, in closing, the Shaykh mentioned a number of points of ahkam or rulings from this hadith, and we'll close with this. He said the first ruling 
is that it is mustahab to raise the hand at the time of making tahmir to ihram by ijma' or consensus of the scholars. Nobody disagrees. All of the scholars, first and second group, agree that, you, that it's mustahab to raise the hand for the first takbir. And the majority of scholars also agree, uh, though there's difference of opinion about it, but the majority agree that it's mustahab to raise the hand at the time of going, going to ruku, coming up from ruku, and uh, uh, at the time of... Uh, standing up for the third rakah. Also, the second point from this hadith is that the raising up of the hand should be up to the shoulders or according to some authentic narrations reported by Al-Bukhari up to the level of the ears or in between the two. Uh, <coughs> the third point the Shaykh says is that the Prophet didn't used to do so when raising up from sujood. Yani when coming up from sujood, he didn't used to raise his hand. The fourth is that there's many points uh, of wisdom <coughs> concerning uh, this raising of the hands and some of the scholars uh, said that one of the points of wisdom concerning this or the reason for it is that it is an act of ibadah for the hands yani the raising of the hands is an act of ibadah for the hands just as uh, the other positions in the prayer are acts of ibadah for the other parts of the body inshallah we'll just stop for the adhan and then just take yani two moments maybe to complete this last statement and to take any questions or comments or corrections. statement that the Sheikh mentioned is the wisdom, the reason, or the understanding for raising of the hands. And he said that the scholars collected a number of reasons. They agreed on one thing, uh, though they differed on other points concerning the reason or the wisdom behind raising hands. They agreed that the raising of the hands is an act of ibadah or an act of worship for the hands. The scholars agreed on this. Other, on other points, they made it to have, and some of them said that the raising of the hand in the salat is the raising up or the removal of the curtain of unmindfulness, the curtain that is between the slave of Allah and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When we are outside of the prayer, we are unmindful, we are neglectful of remembrance of Allah often, too much, and that this raising of the hands is the raising of that curtain that is between us and between our Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala is a reminder to us to remember Allah and to reflect on Him. Some of the scholars said that uh, <coughs> the moving of the parts of the body, such as the raising of the hands, this movement also is a means uh, to, in, to activate the heart, yeah, I mean to make the heart to become more conscious or aware. Uh, also, <coughs> and Imam Ashafi, Rahimahullah, he said that this raising of the hands is ta'adimullah wa tida'a sunnatin nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And Imam Ashafi said the raising of the hands is exaltation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is exaltation or glorification of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it is following of the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa in raising the hand, the person glorifies Allah and they also uh, demonstrate in practice their love for following 
the Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Since we know he did it, there's no difference of opinion about the fact that he did it. The Sahaba are in agreement with it. The Imams are in agreement that he did it. Then this is a demonstration that we really follow the Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And all of these different opinions, there's no contradiction between them. Because many of the things that are legislated in Islam have more than one wisdom or reason behind them. So all of these, yani, may all be taken together, not one to the exclusion of another. <coughs> uh, this is yani, what we can say for today. And if there are any comments or corrections or clarifications or questions, uh, we can take just a few moments before we go to the salat. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika ashadu an la ilaha ila anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayhi. Besides the movements, if there are other movements, like uh, the prayer, yes. there are other movements that are not part of the prayer, yes. such as fixing the clothing, rubbing the beard, looking at the watch, scratching, and things like this. How many movements are allowed? <laughs> Love Adam. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but uh, we, heard, we heard that some, some of them in Lahid, they have uh, the specified if you move more than so many times that it invalidates the salat. That's true. Even I remember one of my teachers when I was in Medina in the language, in the Arabic language program, the teacher who was following the Hanbali Madhat, he told us that. I forgot what number he said, but he said if you move more than so many times, your prayer is invalid. I thought that was very humorous. They said that from Islamic, but I don't know what point, but they said that for three times, if you do this, you give them validation. Well, really, I don't know that there's any evidence, direct evidence for it. But obviously, if the scholars, the Muslim scholars, if they held such positions, they are not just saying anything from their imagination. There may be some indirect proof that they understood through their HTML for such. Even though it's probably wrong, but <laughs> obviously they had something that they were basing their opinion on. I remember the teacher was saying something, but those proofs that he was mentioning, there wasn't one clear proof for what he was saying. So we kind of just yeah, I mean, didn't pay too much attention to it. Yeah. No, there shouldn't be unnecessary movement in the salat. That's true. One of the requirements of the salat is that the person has al-khushua. And al-khushua is a mental as well as a physical state. Yeah, I mean, it means that the person should be conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, their heart and mind reflecting on Allah, and their body should also be tranquil and calm. This is al-khushua, these two things together. This is a requirement of the salah. And to the extent that a person doesn't have al-khushua, to that extent their prayer is defective or falling short. And in the perfection of the salat, part of the perfection of the salat, and one of the most important aspects of the perfection of the salat is al-khushua. So if a person is moving and looking and doing things, even if we don't have proof that the prayer is invalid, but we can say for sure that it is a defect in their prayer, and the prayer is falling short from its completeness or perfection. So it's better to avoid such movements. Uh, any unnecessary movement, it should uh, be avoided. It should be avoided. We should concentrate and try to relax in the prayer and don't make any movements except that which is required as part of the salat itself. Any other comments? 
Yeah, it's permissible in Sujood that a person may mention first the zikr or the azkar of the Prophet وسلم, they used to say, and there are many. <coughs> Actually, I wanted to mention some of those azkar, but because of the time, and we are trying to complete these hadiths that are remaining, uh, there is a book that is really an excellent book. It's called Ma'ani Akwal As-Salat. <coughs> Ma'ani akwal as-salat, yani the meaning of the things in the salat. Hafizu al-salat wa salat al-wusta. This book by a brother named Qasim Sali al-Sahad, in this book he mentions the things, all of the things from the beginning of the place to the end of it, and what are the meaning of those things, the meanings of them. Uh, I wanted to mention some of them, and especially the meanings of them, because sometimes we are just relying on the translation of Subhanallah for example, that it means glory to Allah. And that's far from the meaning of Subhanallah. But, and I say Subhanallah, that we think <laughs> that, this is the, that the meaning of it is glory to Allah. But actually Subhanallah, it is a declaration of the fact that Allah is perfect and Allah is high above whatever has been attributed to Him, of any defect or shortcoming and so on. Uh, in any case, the sayings that one can say is to Jews are many. First, one should concentrate on those which are recorded in authentic hadith. And also, it's permissible for you to supplicate in your own words. As the Prophet made us know that a person is nearest to their Lord when they are in the position of sajda. Therefore, supplicate Allah more and more. So that means, if you said, Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la, three times, for example, without adding any other supplication from the Sunnah to it, you might supplicate Allah, asking Him for anything of worldly matters or things of the next life, as you like, as long as those things are lawful and those things that and are beneficial. Even if it's of worldly things, you may ask for it, and this is a good time to ask for it in the position of sajda. But first one should uh, apply the sunnah. From any of those things that the Prophet used to say in sajda, you should say that. You may say one or two of them or more, according to the most correct opinion, and Imam now said so, uh, and one of the proofs of that is that the Prophet used to remain in sajda for a long period of time. How can he have only said, Subhana Rabbi Al-Ala three times? Therefore, this is one of the proofs that it's permissible to say more than one uh, supplication or zikr from the Prophet in addition to any supplication from yourself. It's permissible. You may ask Allah for whatever you want to ask him for. Even in the fard. Of course, in the fard prayer, you cannot control the amount of time you have in sajda. In that case, you should mention that which is from the sunnah. Because the majority of the imam are either not aware of the sunnah or they are just neglectful. So they usually make sajda very quickly. You can hardly say Subhana Rabbi Al-Ala three times. You can hardly say. So there's no need to think about saying anything else in sajda when you're in the fard prayer. But when you are praying alone, you can say as you like. <laughs> Uh, if authority is more authentic, what do you think about it? If authority is more authentic, I don't know the last statement you said, what? Uh-huh. Okay. The four, the four Imams, the four Imams, the Raman, Rahimahullah, and all of them, uh, it is permissible to study the 
rule of law or jurisprudence of any of the poor men, it is permissible to study any one of them that you choose. I will to your question. This introductory remark. <laughs> it is permissible to follow any one of them. Permissible, but it is not obligatory to follow any one of them. It is not obligatory. Hope, please, just give me a chance, I will answer you, inshallah. I understand your question. You might choose to follow any one that is suitable for you, any one of them. But following any imam, it means to, according to your ability, to the best of your ability, to know what are his proofs and evidences, so that if he held any opinion about a matter, for which he has no correct or authentic evidence, you should not follow him in that. But you should take the correct evidence and follow the correct evidence. And in that case, in this manner, you might follow any imam that you like. From the four imams or other imams who were greater than them, who were before them, the imams among Sahaba, the imams among Tabi'in, and others who came after them. You might follow any of them that you like. But examining their evidences so that you may avoid their mistakes because they are human and they are bound to make mistakes in some issues. So you will follow them and that which they made the correct opinion about and you will not accept their errors. Okay, that's the first point. Which one is the most correct? The most correct of them is the real Imam. The Imam of all Muslims that is the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He is the most correct of them. Without a doubt, there is no doubt about it. If I said to you that Imam Shafi'i is the most correct of them, then the followers of Imam Ahmed and Malik and Abu Hanifa, they will argue. They will say, no, our Imam is more correct. If I said to you that Imam Ahmed is the most correct because his madhab is based on hadith, then the other people will say, no, our Imam is more correct. But if I say to you that the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad وسلم, he is the most correct, can anyone argue with this? I think they cannot. If they deny this, they will enter into kufr. It will be a statement of kufr to say that it is more correct to follow anyone other than the Messenger of Allah Wasallam. Because the Imams, we are not required to follow them. But the Messenger of Allah Wasallam, we are required, it is obligatory on us. We are commanded by Allah to obey Him. Allah ordered us to obey Him. As for obeying the Imams or the scholars, we obey them to the extent that they obey Allah and they obey the Messenger of Allah Otherwise, we have no obligation yani, directly to obey them, but our obligation directly is to obey the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And I think we should go now because perhaps the, the salat will pass us by. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu alayk. Inshallah we can talk, you and I.